After reciting the Tashahud, Ta'awuz and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalib Masih V, Ayyadullah Ta'ala ibn Sazi stated, Accounts during the Caliphate of Hazrat Umar who were being narrated, as well as the battles that were fought during that time. From the books of history, we come to know that during the time of Hazrat Abu Bakr, Damascus was besieged for several months and that Muslims gained victory in this battle a short while after his demise. Nevertheless, as the details of this battle correspond to the era of Hazrat Abu Bakr, they will be presented when narrating the accounts of Hazrat Abu Bakr, God willing. I will mention the incidents that took place following the conquest of Damascus. After conquering Damascus, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah sent Hazrat Khalid bin Walid on another expedition to Baqar. Baqar is a large area comprising of many towns situated between Damascus, Baalbek and Homs. After gaining victory here, he sent a contingent ahead. An argument broke out between the Byzantines and the people of this expedition over a fountain called Mesanun, which resulted in a fight. Coincidentally, a Byzantine by the name of Sinan was successful in attacking the Muslims from the other side of Beirut and martyred a large number of Muslims. Beirut was a well-known coastal town in the Levant. As such, this fountain was attributed to these martyrs and was called Ainus Shuhada, i.e. Fountain of the Martyrs. Abu Ubaidah appointed Yazid bin Abi Sufyan as his representative in Damascus, who subsequently sent Deha bin Khalifa with an expedition to Tadmur in order to pave the way for victory. Tadmur is an ancient and well-known town in Syria, located at a distance of five days from Aleppo. The Yazid that is being mentioned here is the son of Hazrat Abu Sufyan. Similarly, Abu Zahra Kosheri was sent to Basnia and Hawarin, but the people then agreed to enter into a treaty. Basnia was the name of a town near Damascus. Baran was a large area in Damascus which consisted of many towns and agricultural land. Aside from Tiberias, the capital of Jordan, Shurahbil bin Hassana conquered the entire country through battle as war was imposed on him and the people of Tiberias agreed to a treaty. Hazrat Khalid bin Walid also returned victorious from Baqa. The people of Baalbek accepted the treaty 
and he wrote an oath with them. According to the books of history, Baalbek is an ancient town and located at a distance of three days' travel from Damascus. What is meant here by the distance of days is the distance one would cover by the means of transport of that era, that is, by camel or horse. Fahil is the name of a place which was conquered in 14 Hijri. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah wrote to Hazrat Umar saying, I have come to know that Heraclius is in Homs and dispatching his armies towards Damascus. However, it is difficult for me to decide whether I should first attack Damascus or Fahil. Fahil is the name of a place in the Levant. In reply to this, Hazrat Umar wrote, you should first attack Damascus and conquer it, as it is the main fortress of Syria and the headquarters. Along with this, you should also send a cavalry contingent towards Fahl, which will not allow them to advance towards you. If Fahl is conquered before Damascus, then so be it. But if not, then conquer Damascus, and then leave a small portion of your army there and take all your commanders with you and head towards Fahl. If Allah the Almighty grants victory over Fahil at your hands, then you and Khalid should head towards Homs, and you should send Shurahbil and Amr towards Jordan and Palestine. As soon as Hazrat Abu Ubaidah received a letter from Hazrat Umar, he sent ten commanders, of which the most prominent was Abu Awr Salami, to Fahil, and he himself accompanied Hazrat Khalid bin Walid to Damascus. When the Byzantine armies saw the Muslim forces approaching, they flooded their surroundings with water from the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, causing the earth to become like a marsh, which was difficult to traverse. Nonetheless, owing to this, the forces of Heraclius sent as reinforcements to Damascus were also prevented from reaching their destination. Due to the flooding, all pathways were blocked, yet the Muslims remained steadfast. After witnessing the determination of the Muslims, the Christians agreed to a truce and sent word to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah to send a representative. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah appointed Hazrat Muaz bin Jabal for this. Hazrat Muaz bin Jabal presented the Islamic teachings to the enemy, but they were not willing to accept it. Among other things, the Byzantines proposed to Hazrat Muaz that if the Muslims were to retreat from this country and attack Persia instead, they could take the province of Balqa and other land in Jordan adjacent to Muslim territory, but they were to leave from there. They themselves initially prepared an army, but after sensing defeat, they offered this proposal. Hazrat Muaz declined their offer and returned, while the Byzantines requested to speak with Hazrat Abu Ubaidah directly. Therefore, a special emissary was sent to the Muslim encampment. When he arrived there, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah was seated on the ground, examining arrows. The messenger thought that the commander-in-chief would be distinguishable owing to his grandeur and opulence. But everyone he saw looked the same. Finally, after some hesitation, he asked as to who the commander was. The people indicated towards Hazrat Abu Ubaidah, which left him astonished. He addressed Hazrat Abu Ubaidah in shock and asked in, in fact he was the commander. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah answered in the affirmative. The emissary said they would offer each and every Muslim soldiers two gold coins if they were to retreat. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah rejected the offer, upon which the messenger became infuriated and returned. Upon seeing the messenger's hostile attitude, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah commanded the Muslim army to get ready and wrote to Hazrat Umar mentioning everything that had happened. Hazrat Umar anhu, gave permission to advance forward as the Byzantine forces continued to gather and encouraged the Muslims to remain steadfast and that God would come to their aid. 
Hazrat Abu Ubaida had given the command to ready the forces that very day, but the Byzantine forces did not confront them. Again, the next day, Hazrat Khalid bin Walid went out to the battlefield with a contingent of horsemen. The Byzantine army was also prepared and a battle ensued. After witnessing the resolve of the Muslims, the Byzantines thought it was pointless to prolong the battle and wanted to retreat. Hazrat Khalid bin Walid proclaimed that the Byzantines have used up their strength and now it was the turn of the Muslims to strike. With this, the Muslims launched a sudden assault and the Byzantines suffered defeat. The Christians were delaying the battle in hope for reinforcements, but Hazrat Khalid bin Walid understood their scheme. He informed Hazrat Abu Ubaidah that the Byzantines had become overwhelmed and that it was the best time to launch an attack. Therefore, it was announced immediately that an attack would be launched the following day and the army should prepare. In the last quarter of the night, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah assembled his forces. At that time, the Byzantine forces were approximately 50,000 in number. Two historians who have written on the life of Hazrat Umar Haikal and Salabi, have also reported this army to be 80,000 to 100,000 in number. Regardless, after an hour of intense combat, the Byzantines lost their footing and losing all hope, they withdrew. Following this, Hazrat Umar commanded that all the land that was seized will remain with its owners. No land would be taken from anyone. The people's lives, wealth, land, properties and places of worship would remain safe and only lots for building mosques would be acquired. If land was speedily taken, it would be only to construct a mosque and all other land would remain with its owners. Then there is also the conquest of Baisan. After Hazrat Shurahbil was victorious in the Battle of Fail, he and his forces accompanied Hazrat Amr and advanced towards Baisan and laid a siege. At that time, Abu Awar and a few other commanders had besieged Tiberias. Besan was situated about 18 miles south of Tiberias. Word had spread about the ongoing defeats of the Byzantines in the battles that took place in regions of Jordan and Damascus and in other conquests. The people learned that Hazrat Shurahbil, along with Hazrat Amr bin As, Hazrat Haris bin Hisham and Hazrat Suhail bin Amr were headed with their armies towards Baisan and so everyone gathered in their forts. Hazrat Shurahbil besieged Baisan after arriving there. The siege lasted a few days, after which some combatants emerged for battle. The Muslims fought and defeated them, while the rest of the residents sought a peace treaty. The Muslims accepted the same terms which had been agreed upon at the conquest of Damascus. Then there is the conquest of Tiberias. When the residents of Tiberias heard the news of the conquest of Baisan and the resulting treaty, they requested a truce from Abu Laqbar on the condition that their plea be put before Hazrat Shurahbil. Abu Laqbar accepted their request and thus residents of Baisan and Tiberias both agreed to the terms settled in Damascus. It was also decided that half of the total residents in the towns and surrounding villages would be emptied for the Muslims, while the Byzantines would occupy the other remaining half. It was also decided that everyone would be taxed one dinar annually, and a specific portion from the yielded crops would be due. After this, the Muslim leaders and soldiers became residents among the public, and the establishment of peace with Jordan reached completion. All reinforcements took residence in and around Jordan, and the good news of the victory was sent to Hazrat Umar anhu. Then there is the conquest of Homs, which took place in 14 Hijri. Following these events, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah advanced to Homs, a well-known city in Syria. Homs held political significance and importance in terms of warfare as well. Homs was situated in Syria between Damascus and Aleppo. There was a large temple in Homs, which people visited from far-off places, and many took pride in worshipping there. Nonetheless, the Byzantines wished to fight and advanced accordingly. As a result, a great army departed from Homs and met the Muslims at Josiah, but the result was their own defeat. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah and Hazrat Khalid bin Walid besieged Homs upon their arrival. 
there was extreme cold weather and the Byzantines believed that the Muslims would not last long in a battle in the open battlefield. Along with this, reinforcements were also expected from Heraclius. As such, he sent reinforcements from Jazeera, but they were intercepted and halted by forces sent by Hazrat Saad bin Abi Waqqas, who was appointed to conquer Iraq. Historians write that although the Byzantines had footwear made of leather, their feet would lose sensation, while the companions and the Muslims had ordinary footwear and nothing more. Heraclius had promised to assist the people of Homs, and after encouraging them to fight, he fled to Roha. He promised them, but then left from there. The people of Homs remained in their fort. They would only fight the Muslims when it was a very cold day. The Byzantines were in wait for aid from Heraclius and hoped that the Muslims would retreat owing to the severe cold. However, the Muslims remained resolute, and the aid of Heraclius did not arrive, i.e. it did not reach the people. Furthermore, the cold weather also passed, and so the people of Homs became convinced that it was impossible to challenge the Muslims. Consequently, they wished to enter into a treaty. The Muslims agreed to this, and the residents were left in their homes. Like the people of Damascus, they agreed to pay Kharaj and the jizya. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah wrote to Hazrat Umar informing him about the situation. In his reply, Hazrat Umar instructed the following, Remain there and gather all the powerful Arab tribes under your flag. God willing, I will regularly send reinforcements from here. Marj al-Rum was another place and the incident of Marj al-Rum took place in the same year. Marj al-Rum was a place near to Damascus. The incident was that Hazrat Abu Ubaidah travelled from Fal to Hims along with Hazrat Khalid bin Walid. They stopped at Zulqala. When Heraclius came to know of their movements, he dispatched Theodorus. He went to Marj Damascus and stayed to the west side. Abu Ubaidah set off from Marj al-Rum with his army. The situation of the Muslims at the time was such that the winter months had set in and their bodies were covered in wounds. When they arrived at Marj al-Rum, the Byzantine commander Shanas also reached there and camped near Theodorus with his cavalry. Shanas had come to assist Theodorus and to save the people of Homs. He encamped to one side with his army. When night fell, the other commander, Theodorus, left from there. Owing to his departure, the area was vacant. Theodorus was up against Hazrat Khalid bin Walid, whereas Shanas was facing Hazrat Abu Ubaidah. When Hazrat Khalid bin Walid learnt that Theodorus had left for Damascus, Hazrat Khalid and Hazrat Abu Ubaidah unanimously agreed that Hazrat Khalid should go after Theodorus. Hence, Hazrat Khalid bin Walid went after Theodorus with a cavalry contingent. Yazid bin Abi Sufyan learnt about the actions of Theodorus, and so he set out against Theodorus. Both armies confronted one another and the battle intensified. The battle was still continuing when Hazrat Khalid bin Walid arrived on the battlefield along with his army. He attacked the rear of Theodorus's army and as a result the enemy were attacked from both fronts and their corpses began to pile up. The Muslims killed them on all fronts and only those who ran away survived. From among the spoils of war that were gained in this battle included mounts, weapons and armour, etc. This was distributed by Hazrat Yazid bin Abi Sufyan between his soldiers and the soldiers of Hazrat Khalid bin Walid. After this, Hazrat Yazid travelled to Damascus and Hazrat Khalid bin Walid returned to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah.
The infamous Yazid, who is mentioned in the history of Islam, was the son of Muawiyah. The aforementioned Yazid is the son of Abu Sufyan. The Byzantine commander Theodorus was killed by Hazrat Khalid bin Walid. When Hazrat Khalid bin Walid went after Theodorus, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah chased after Shans. Both armies fought in Marjar Room. The Muslim army killed many adversaries and Hazrat Abu Ubaidah killed Shanas. Marjar Room was filled with the bodies of the enemy and owing to this, the area was filled with a stench. From among the Byzantine forces, only the ones who ran away survived. Everyone else perished. The Muslims chased those who ran away up until Homs. After this, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah set off with his army towards Hamad. Hamad was also an ancient town of Syria and was situated at a distance of five days' travel from Damascus. The people of Hamad agreed to obey their authority. When the people of Shehazar came to know of this, they also agreed to obey the Muslims like the people of Hamad. Shehazar was a settlement situated at a distance of half a day's travel from Hamad. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah then conquered Salamiya. Salamiya was the name of a settlement which was located at a distance of two days' travel from Hamad. Then there was the conquest of Lazikhiya, which took place in 14 Hijri. The Muslim army marched under the command of Hazrat Abu Ubaidah towards Lazikhiya, which was a town on the Syrian coast and was considered to be part of the suburbs of Homs. When the people of Lazakiya saw the Muslim army approaching, they retreated to their forts and prepared to confront them. They were content that if the Muslim army besieged them, they had the strength to confront them, and in the meantime, they would receive reinforcements from Heraclius via the sea. The Muslims besieged the town. The town had a strong defense system and was renowned for its army check posts. As Hazrat Abu Ubaidah was experienced in war tactics and strategies, he devised a new plan to conquer the city. He realized that if they encamped there, it would be very difficult to conquer it and the siege would become prolonged. Similarly, it was also possible that during the siege, the enemy would send them, i.e. the people of the town, reinforcements, as a result of which they would have to return unsuccessful. Furthermore, if the siege became prolonged, it would be impossible to get to Antakya. One night, he ordered for many trenches to be dug deep enough that it could conceal a person on horseback. Subsequently, the trenches were hidden with grass. In the morning, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah lifted the siege and headed back towards Homs. When the people of the town saw the siege was lifted, they were overjoyed and happily opened the doors of the city. At the same time, Hazrat Abu Ubaidah returned in the night with his army and hid in the trenches. In the morning when the doors of the town opened, the Muslims launched an attack. Some of the Muslims captured the doors which were on the outer perimeter of the fort. Some people considered it wise to run away, and those who were in the town were overcome with fear. Everyone inside the town began planning on how to survive, and they were left with no other choice but to accept the authority of the Muslims. Thus they entered into an agreement with the Muslims, and those that ran away sought protection from the Muslims. The Muslims entered the town victoriously. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah accepted the treaty on the condition that they paid the jizya and left their church under their rule. Later on, Muslims made a mosque near to the church. After this victory, Hazrat Umar wrote stating that no further military action should take place that year. The conquest of Kinnisarin took place in 15 Hijri. Hazrat Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah 
sent Hazrat Khalid bin Walid towards Kinnasarin, which was a dynamic city in the province of Aleppo. The fort of Kinnasarin was situated on the road to Aleppo between the mountains. Hazrat Khalid bin Walid reached a place called Hadr. Hadr was also a place near Aleppo. Over here, the Byzantine commander Menas arrived with his army to confront the Muslims. After Heraclius, Menas was the most renowned commander-in-chief amongst the Byzantines. Nonetheless, the residents of Hadir and the Christian Arabs fought against the Muslims. As was the Arab custom, in order to protect the city, they would head out of the city and pitch their tents there. In line with this custom, the Christian Arabs set up their tents outside the city. After a fierce battle, Hazrat Khalid had killed a large part of the Byzantine forces, including their commander Menas. The people of Hadir sent a message to Hazrat Khalid bin Walid stating that they were Arabs and never wished to fight. In fact, they were forced to fight and therefore they should be forgiven. Hazrat Khalid bin Walid accepted their plea and stopped any further attack. Some of the Byzantine forces ran to seek shelter in the fort of Kinnasarin. Hazrat Khalid bin Walid chased them to Kinnasarin, but by the time he reached there, the gates of the city had been sealed shut. Upon seeing this, Hazrat Khalid bin Walid sent a message to them stating, Even if you sought shelter in the clouds, Allah the Almighty would raise us up to you or throw you down to us. A few days passed by and they remained in the fort. Eventually, the people of Kunisarin realized that there was no option left to escape. Thus, they wished to enter a peace treaty on the same conditions as the people of Homs. However, Hazrat Khalid bin Walid had already issued the verdict of punishment owing to breaching the treaty. They had broken the treaty previously and Hazrat Khalid bin Walid was intent on punishing them and thus he was intent on destroying the city, leaving their wealth and families to their fate. The people of Kinnisarin ran away to Antakya. When Hazrat Abu Ubaidah bin al-Jarrah reached Kinnisarin, he found Hazrat Khalid bin Walid's judgment to be just and fair. Thus the fort of the city and the boundary walls were destroyed. After this they thought that alongside justice an act of benevolence ought to follow suit. I.e. the Muslims had dispensed justice to the enemy and now they ought to show benevolence. In line with this they gave protection to the people of the city in accordance with their request. It is said that the church and other homes were divided and Muslims occupied half of the area and half of the area was left to them. According to one narration, it is said that the Muslims took one part of the land and built a mosque there and left the remaining area to its residents. The people that left for Antakya returned on the condition of paying the jizya. Just like the people of other conquered lands, they were also treated with compassion. Justice was upheld between all of them equally. And no powerful person could commit any injustice against a weaker person. Then was the conquest of Kesaria, which took place in 15 Hijri. Kesaria was a coastal town of Syria, which was situated at a distance of three days' travel from Tiberias. There are various narrations regarding when this battle took place. One narration states that it took place in 15 Hijri. According to a second narration, it took place in 16 Hijri. A third narration puts it to have taken place in 19 Hijri. And according to a fourth narration, it took place in 20 Hijri. Nonetheless, when Hazrat Abu Ubaidah was making great advancements across the Byzantine-occupied Levant, Hazrat Amr bin Alas and Hazrat Shurahbil bin Hassana were trying to defeat the Byzantine forces that had gathered in Palestine. However, this was not an easy task. These forces heavily outnumbered the Muslims and were well equipped. They were led by the most experienced Byzantine commander, Atrabun, whose vision and war strategy were unparalleled in all the land. He thought that the army ought to be scattered to various places so that the rule and authority remained exclusively his. Also, that if the Arabs overcame some of these contingents, 
the other parts of the army would remain unaffected. Thus, he left a large army in Ramla and Ilya and smaller contingents to support them in Gaza, Sebastia, Nablus, Lud and Yaffa. Thereafter, he remained in wait for the Arab army. He was convinced that he had the strength to defeat the Arabs and weaken their power. Hazrat Amr bin al-As understood the delicate situation and thought that if his entire army was to come up against Atrabun, then the Byzantine forces would all unite with one another and subsequently his army would not be able to defeat them. In fact, the Byzantines may even overcome them. Hence, he wrote a letter to inform Hazrat Umar and Hazrat Umar instructed Yazid bin Abi Sufyan to send his brother Muawiyah to take control over Kisariya so that it would not be possible for Atrabun to receive any support from the coastal route. In the letter addressed to Amir Muawiyah, Hazrat Umar wrote, I appoint you as the Emir of Kisariya. You must go there and seek the help of Allah against them and recite, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم والله ربنا وثقاتنا ورجاءنا ومولانا نعم المولى ونعم النصير Meaning, it is through Allah alone that one can acquire the strength to refrain from sin and perform virtuous deeds for He is the most lofty, the great. He is our Lord and in Him we place all our trust and hope. He is our Master, and what a great Master He is indeed, and He is our Helper. It is written in Al-Farooq that amongst the Muslims it was Amr bin As who first launched an attack in Qaysariya, and despite a prolonged siege, they were unable to gain victory. After the demise of Abu Ubaidah, Hazrat Umar anhu appointed Yazid bin Abi Sufyan in his place and instructed him to go to Kasaria. He went along with 17,000 soldiers and laid siege of the city. However, in 18 Hijri, when he fell ill, he appointed his brother Amir Muawiyah in his place and went to Damascus and that is where he passed away. Kesaria is situated on the coast of the Levantine Sea and is counted amongst the provinces of Palestine. Today it is completely uninhabited. However, previously it was a huge city and according to Al-Baladhuri, it had 300 bazaars and a huge Byzantine army was appointed to safeguard it. At the edge of the coast, they also had a very strong fort which posed a great danger for others. As Muawiyah arrived in Kesaria and laid a siege, the Byzantines would launch an attack on the Islamic army but would face defeat and retreat to his trenches. Eventually, when the siege was prolonged, the enemy came forth for an all-out battle. However, they suffered such a devastating defeat that 80,000 soldiers of theirs were killed in the battlefield. Including those who ran away, this figure reached 100,000. After the conquest of Kesaria and the destruction of its army, the Muslims were at ease from this direction and felt secure because the Byzantines could no longer receive reinforcements from this route. Hazrat Muawiyah sent news of the victory along with one-fifth of the spoils of war to Hazrat Umar. According to one other narration, Hazrat Amir Muawiyah laid a siege with a lot of equipment and weaponry. On numerous occasions, the people of the city came out of their fort to fight, but each time they faced defeat. However, they could still not take complete control of the city. One day, a Jewish man by the name of Yusuf came to Amir Muawiyah and showed him a tunnel which led right through the city and right up to the door of the fort. Subsequently, a few brave men reached the fort through the tunnel and opened the door of the fort, and with this the entire army launched an attack and attained victory. Hazrat Ubadah bin Samit is among the companions who took part in the Battle of Badr and also took part in this battle. His brave efforts during the Battle of Kesaria have been mentioned as follows. Upon the siege of Kesaria, Hazrat Ubadah bin Samit was the commander of the right flank of the Muslim army. 
He stood up in order to grant counsel to his men and commanded them to refrain from committing sin and to constantly assess their conditions. He then proceeded forth with a large group of Mujahideen and they killed many of the Byzantine soldiers, but they were still unable to properly accomplish their objective. Hence, he returned to his original post and once again encouraged his fellow men to go for an all-out battle. But despite launching an attack with a huge army of his men, he was greatly surprised to have returned without accomplishing his objective. He then stated, O ye Muslims, among the leaders appointed on the occasion of Bayt al-Aqba, I was the youngest. I have lived the longest among them. And Allah the Almighty decreed that I remain alive to the extent that I am now fighting against the enemy along with you. I swear by him in whose hands is my life. Whenever I have taken a party of believers to launch an attack against the idolaters, they left the battlefield. We triumphed and we were granted victory over them by Allah the Almighty. What has happened on this occasion that you could not overcome them having launched an attack on them? Then he expressed his fear in relation to this incident in the following words. I fear two things in relation to you. Either someone from among you is dishonest or when you launched an attack, you were not sincere. Either they were dishonest or not sincere or they were not sincere at the time of launching the attack. Thereafter, he instructed them to seek the station of martyrdom with absolute sincerity. He then said, I will remain at the forefront and will not move back until Allah the Almighty grants us victory or the station of martyrdom. Subsequently, when the Byzantines and Muslims came up against each other in battle, Hazrat Ubadah bin Samit jumped off his horse and began to walk on foot. When Umair bin Saad Ansari saw him walking on the foot, he spread the news that the leader of the Muslim army was fighting on foot and stated that everyone should follow suit. Following this, they all tremendously fought against the Byzantines and pushed them back to the point that they fled and took refuge in their fortresses. The way the Arabs took control of Qasariya, in the same manner, Gaza was conquered. The Muslims had taken control of Gaza once before during the era of Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq but later they had to relieve from there. When both these frontier regions were in control of the Muslims, Hazrat Amr bin Alas felt at ease from any danger arising from the coastal side. These accounts will continue. However, at this point in time, I will mention some deceased members and will also lead their funeral prayers after the Friday prayers. The first mention is of respected Khadija Sahiba, wife of respected Maulvi K. Muhammad Alvi Sahib, who was the former missionary of Kerala. She passed away recently at the age of 80. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. Her father, Kahni Muhyiddin Sahib, was amongst the early Ahmadis of Kerala. The deceased had the opportunity to enter the fold of Ahmadiyya at a very young age. She exhibited great patience and gratitude and was regular in her prayers, fasting and very religious. She looked after the poor and was very hospitable and always content with whatever she had. Her husband was a missionary and would be away from home for many days whilst on official tours. However, the deceased never complained and was always filled with gratitude. She is survived by two sons and five daughters. The deceased was a Musia. Her eldest son, K. Mahmood Sahib, was also a missionary and passed away at the age of 54 owing to kidney failure. Her youngest son is also a Muallim of the Jamaat and all five daughters are married to missionaries. May Allah the Almighty grant her with forgiveness. The next mention is of Malik Sultan Rashid Khan Sahib of Kort Fateh Khan, who is the former Amir of Atok district. Malik Sultan Rashid Khan Sahib passed in the night between 22nd and 23rd of August. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. By the grace of Allah the Almighty, he was a Musi. His father, Colonel Malik Sultan Muhammad Khan Sahib, took the bath at the hand of Hazrat Muslim Audra in 1923 at the age of 23. 
His father was the only Ahmadi in his family. He later got married to Aisha Siddiqa Sahiba, the daughter of Chaudhry Muhammad Fateh Ahmad Sial Sahib. The marriage proposal was recommended by Hazrat Muslim Aadr himself. Sultan Rashid Sahib's grandfather's name was Malik Sultan Rashid Surkhru Khan. He was afforded with great respect in the royal court of the British Empire and would be seated on a chair to sit in the royal court as a mark of respect. He accepted Ahmadiyyat four years after his son, Malik Sultan Muhammad Khan Sahib. The services rendered by Malik Sultan Rashid Khan Sahib for the Jamaat are as follows. He had the opportunity to serve as the Emir of the Atuk district from 1996 to 1999 and from 2005 to 2014. At the time of his demise, he was serving as the president of the court Fateh Khan Jamaat. He was a relative of the former governor of West Pakistan, Mir Muhammad Khan. Their entire family was immersed in various worldly pursuits. However, after accepting Ahmadiyyat, his father, though, did not completely abandon his worldly endeavors, but always gave precedence to his faith over worldly matters. And the same quality was found in Malik Sultan Rashid Khan Sahib as well. Initially, he had done wasiyat of one-tenth and later changed to one-seventh. I believe he paid one-tenth on his property and one-seventh on his income. His sister, Rashda Sial, states, Hazrat Khriptum Si, the fourth Rahimahullah, once stated, Your father was like an unsheathed sword for Ahmadiyyat, and the same quality is also found in your brothers. She further states regarding her brother Malik Rashid Sahib, Our brother had a very strong bond with Khilafat, and he would immediately adhere to every instruction of Khriptum Si. By the grace of blessings of Allah the Almighty, he always remained a very trusted servant of Khilafat, and always served with complete devotion. He was extremely spiritual, and whenever anyone would see him, they would feel that he had no attachment whatsoever to a materialistic life. He was extremely humble, and would never speak much about his personal relationship with Allah the Almighty, even though he had a strong bond. He would spend day and night praying for others, whether they be a friend, relative, or someone he did not even know. There is not a single person from among his friends, family and others who left empty-handed from his door. Many people also took advantage of his generosity. However, he would never refuse them. One lady came to my niece and stated, what will happen of those people now whose stoves were lit only due to the financial help received from Sultan Rashid Sahib? In other words, all their food and provisions were taken care of through the help of Sultan Rashid Khan Sahib. She further states, He showed such an exemplary level of generosity that we cannot even imagine. My niece one day asked him that would people even appreciate and remember all the help he rendered towards them? To this he replied that perhaps... They may not remember, but his only intention was so that Allah the Almighty would be pleased with him. His sister Naima Sahiba states, My brother had a great passion for tabligh and became the means of guidance for many fortunate souls. He would find an opportunity to do tabligh to anyone he would meet. Many non-Ahmadi friends would visit in the evening and would discuss the subject of the demise of Jesus for hours. And there was also an element of danger in this as well. His passion for worship was remarkable. He would often close the door of his room and worship his God in solitude. Allah the Almighty also granted him true dreams and visions. Once he went to Abdabad in the summer season, he was suddenly faced with some financial hardship and there was nothing else he could do except pray. In his morning walk whilst passing by an area filled with trees, he heard a loud and clear voice which stated, La taqnatu min rahmatullah. I despair not of the mercy of Allah. 
The wife of Zubairi Sahib, who was the former Amir of Atak, states, He had told his sister that during the era of Hazrat Khalip Tumsi IV, Rahimahullah, he was staying at her house in order to attend a meeting with all the districts. He looked quite concerned and was inquired as to what the matter was. He stated that he had to deliver a speech, but he was not able to prepare for it at all. However, the next morning, he was very happy and joyful. And when he came for breakfast, he said that in the night, Hazrat Khalip Tumsi III, Rahimahullah, came in his dream and dictated the entire speech in a short time, and now all praise to Allah, his speech was ready. He had an immense level of trust in Allah the Almighty that he spent many years living in his village without any kind of worry despite being surrounded by houses of opponents. He was never scared or anxious. He was extremely courageous and he would often say, not even a single leaf can move without the command of God. Once his attendant in the house sent someone back who had come to seek some help and so he advised him saying, if Allah the Almighty has made me a means of helping someone, then who am I to tell them to go back? He had the skill of being able to partake in any intellectual discussion. He had read the books of the Prophet many times. MashaAllah, he possessed many qualities and was regular in his salat and fasting. He was also regular in his tahajjud and devoted to his worship. He would speak with great wisdom and would always conclude his talk with the subject of tabliq. May Allah the Almighty grant him his forgiveness and mercy. The next mention of respected Abdul Qayyum Sahib of Indonesia, who passed away on 25th of August at the age of 82. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. He was the son of the late Abdul Wahid Sumatri Sahib, who was the first non-Indian and non-Pakistani missionary. He obtained his bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from a renowned technical school in Indonesia. Then upon a government scholarship, he pursued higher education in France, where he obtained a master's degree in petroleum economics. He was then employed by the Ministry of Energy and Mineral Resources, where he worked in various capacities. Even after retiring, he would be called upon for work due to being an expert in the field. Then at the age of 73, after a great deal of effort, he obtained his PhD in chemical engineering from the University of Indonesia. He rendered invaluable services for his country as well. In 1973, he proposed a formula for liquefied natural gas to the government. As a result, between 1974 and 2000. This benefited the government by $110 billion. In fact, Ahmadis everywhere are always ready to serve their country and nation. Even in Indonesia, due to the sway of the clerics, Ahmadis face grave persecution in certain areas. But despite this, it is our duty to remain loyal to the country. Abdul Qayyim Saab also received the country's highest possible award for a civil servant. Then in 2005 he received another auspicious award which is given to those outside the Indonesian government and military who render remarkable services in their field. Furthermore, the country's heroes are given a military ceremony at one of their graveyards where they are buried. However, since the deceased did not wish to be buried there, the military ceremony took place at the graveyard for Musian in Parung, which is where he was honorably buried. He was very loving and took great care of his siblings. His father had advised him to take care of his siblings, and he always acted upon this. He treated missionaries and life devotees with great respect. His younger brother, Basit Saib, is also a missionary as well as the national president of the Jamaat in Indonesia.
He was very kind in treatment to those who worked under him. One person who worked under him said that he had been under his care since the age of nine and that he paid for his school fees and various other expenses. Then due to his kind treatment, this person went on to read the books of the Prophet after which he accepted Ahmadiyyat. The deceased kindness and generosity was of a very high standard. He always treated everyone equally and never behaved proudly, nor was he ever prideful over the rank that he held. One of the government gas companies which he used to work for said that he was extremely intelligent, resolute and hard-working. He was quite well-known and was high-ranking, despite which he was very humble. He had a great deal of love for Khilafat and the Jamaat. Whenever the Jamaat required a sacrifice to be made or was facing some sort of hardship, he would render help with great sincerity. Hazakritum C. the fourth Rahimullah stayed at his home when he visited Indonesia. Even whilst working in government jobs, the deceased never hid the fact that he was an Ahmadi, nor did he do so afterwards. Even though the persecution increased later on, yet he never hid the fact that he was an Ahmadi. He was always ready to propagate the message to his friends and was a recognized Ahmadi figure. Once the CEO of an electrical company told the minister that the water in the dam was decreasing and if this continued, then the electricity would have to be cut off. The minister trusted his, i.e. Abdul Qayyum Sahib's prayers and so he told him to visit Qayyum Sahib. He went to Qayyum Sahib and requested him for help. He replied by saying that if he wished for him to help him, then he should write a letter to Khalif Tulmasi, our Imam. Thus he wrote a letter requesting for prayers for the matter to be resolved. He says that the letter was sent on Tuesday and the very next day there was a torrential downpour of rain which caused the dam to fill up. As for his services to the Jamaat, there were various complications in the construction of the headquarters complex in Parung due to a shortage in funds. The coordinator for the Bleak at the time, Mahmoud Chima Sahib, mentioned this to him, to which he said that there was no need to worry. He would offer the entire amount, and this is what he did. Within a span of two years, a large mosque was built there. He also contributed most of the funds for the building of the central guest house and missionary quarters. There were four quarters for which the deceased covered all building costs. In the early days of MTA Indonesia, almost all of the expenses were covered by the deceased and his wife. His home in western Jakarta would be used as a studio, and he also covered the allowances of the workers. In the early days of the homeopathy in Indonesia, his family covered all expenses from the medicines themselves to the actual clinic. The building expenses for the Seoul Senior High School were covered by his family, most of which was offered by him. He also offered a significant financial sacrifice for an Indonesian guest house currently being built in Gardian, known as Sarai Ayub. The deceased purchased a lot of property around the center and then gave it to the Jamaat to use for accommodation. Masul Mahmud Sahib, Principal Jami Ahmadi Indonesia, writes At times, there would be long discussions among the Amla during meetings. However, if the national president, who is also his younger brother, said that the discussion should end, then he would immediately become silent and would not present any further ideas. May Allah the Almighty treat the deceased with forgiveness and mercy. The next mention is of respected Dauda Razak Yunus Sahib of Benin, who passed away on 27th of August at the age of 74. Verily to Allah we belong and to Him shall we return. He was among the initial Ahmadis of Benin and was the only Ahmadi in his family. 
He accepted Ahmadiyyat in 1967 through his older brother, Zikrullah Daud Sahib, who was the first Ahmadi of Benin. His wife and children are not Ahmadi. May Allah the Almighty enable them to join as well. Mia Kamal Ahmed, who is the national president and missionary in charge of Benin, writes, He told me the story of his acceptance of Ahmadiyya just a few days before he passed away. He said that he learned that his older brother Zakir Dawood Sahib had accepted Ahmadiyya in Nigeria. He heard people saying various things about Ahmadiyya, and so he went to meet his brother and saw him wearing an Alaysallah ring, and so asked about his brother what kind of ring this was and what significance it held in his faith. He explained that it had the verse of the Holy Quran inscribed on which it meant, Is Allah not sufficient for his servant? And this was what he was taught by the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian. Then he asked his brother whether Ahmadiyya is different from Islam. His brother explained that the Imam which he was awaiting for had already come, and it is our belief that this is the true Islam. Upon hearing this, he said that he began reading the books of the Promise of Islam, and after reading the philosophy of the teachings of Islam, he accepted Ahmadiyyat. He was among the learned Ahmadis of Benin. He had studied in France where he obtained a master's in business management. He retired from his post of National Director for Electricity and Hydro in Benin. He was highly influential, dignified and honourable. He was regular in offering the prayers, including Tahajjud, and was virtuous and sincere. He had profound love for the Prophet Islam and the Caliphs and made it a habit to study their books. He held various offices in the Jamaat and rendered many services to the Jamaat in Benin. He served as a chairman of humanity first from the outset and would organize medical camps and would accompany the doctors, spending entire days without eating while remaining occupied in serving humanity. Dr. Kamar Ahmed Ali Sahib says, I had the privilege of serving as a doctor in Benin. During the medical camps, no matter if he was tired or slept late after a journey, I always saw him offering Tajjid prayers for a long time at night. Whenever I would wake up, I found him offering Tajjid prayers. Muzaffar and Muzaffar Sahib, who is a missionary, says, whenever he had to deliver a speech, he would speak from the heart about fulfilling the conditions of Baith, and would tell me that until one did not understand the revelation of the Prophet is Allah not sufficient for his servants, then they are drawn by materialism. Then the national president writes, In 2006, he gifted 30 acres of land to the Jamaat. In 2021, I expressed my desire for him to have a building constructed from Madrasatul Hifs and present it as a gift to the Jamaat, to which he said with a smile, God willing. And now this work has already begun. He used to say that if the children of the Jamaat are able to obtain an education, then the Benin Jamaat will become one of the largest Jamaats in Africa. He would give children valuable books of the Jamaat as a reward. When he went to visit the Baitul Ikram orphanage, he said to the Dr. Walid Sahib, who is the in charge there, that he should ensure the children's well-being and security because they are the children of the Jamaat and of the nation and we are all their parents. And he prayed for them as well. May Allah the Almighty treat the deceased with forgiveness and mercy and elevate everyone's station. As I said, after the Friday prayers, I will offer the funeral prayer in absentia. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, Nahmadu, and Astainu, and Astaghfiru, and Omenubi, and Atawakalo, and Audubillah, and Shuru, and Fosena, Women say, Yah, 